G'day, I'm Dave Little Proud, the Federal Leader of the Nationals, Shadow Minister for Agriculture. It's great to be on AgWatch's podcast. I'm about to take my medicine from the boys yet again. <laughs> yet again, he comes back. You know, <laughs> last la, last time last time we got accused that we were a bit too nice to you because um, you know, first time round we didn't want to scare you off, but we did get a little bit of feedback, didn't we, Andrew, that we we didn't go in too hard. So we've uh, we've decided to take the boxing gloves off and go bare knuckle this time. Let's dance. <laughs> so uh, the uh, right, we probably don't need to do an introduction to who you are because everyone knows who you are anyway. So we don't need any more. We'll probably just go straight into the psychological testing. Uh, so we'll run the uh, the six cents. Uh, we'll we'll fire six words or phrases at you. If you give us the first thing that comes to mind. And then we will assess if you're competent, A, to be on the podcast, and B, to continue as a senator. So, well, I'm not a senator. Oh, so, sorry. Uh, sorry. sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've already taken the gloves off. Yeah, yeah. That's where politicians go to retire, the senator. Was, uh, we stay in the House of Reps anyway. That was just me testing to see if you were... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> right up, Matt. You go first and you keep the count. Grocery prices. Too high. Your favourite politician? Ooh. In the opposition. In the opposition? <laughs> um, Madeline King. She should be a nap. Is she, is she your one? She's, she's the no, regional. No, you're, you're, you're thinking of Catherine King. Catherine oh, King's right. my, my local member here. Yeah. Oh, right. yeah. Different different party, uh, different person altogether. Um, what about, uh, very, very close to my heart, this one, banjo music? Oh, uh, yeah, Victoria. <laughs> Are you saying we're all hillbillies? <laughs> <laughs> We've got seats in Victoria, don't they? Very, very, very much Parliamentary privilege. Uh, oh, uh, you know, Ian McDonald, uh, he always used to say the word privilege a lot about the entitlements that came, so. What about he used this? it in the wrong context. What about this biosecurity levy? Ridiculous. Okay. Cost of living crisis. Out of control. I think that's it. That's the six. That's, that's the six. Right. Oh, where do we start? We've got a whole bunch of topics. Well, you see cost of living and grocery prices probably in the mix together a bit there. So we might, might start with that because that's a pretty – Important one that's um, hitting a lot of people, I think. So, do, are you, David? Are you from your constituents? Obviously, you're you're sort of Queensland. Are you hearing a lot of people come to you actually concerned about cost of living? Oh, I'm in Rome at the moment, just walk yeah. the streets, and you know, people are making real decisions at the supermarket now about what they're putting in the trolley. Uh, they simply can't afford it. And I mean, when you've got a country uh, that has an agricultural sector as big as what we do in relation to the size of our population, uh, to see what's happening at the checkout is, is pure insanity. And, and when you look at what farmers are getting and what translates through the supply chain to at the end, the checkout, something's not right. And I think my my experience, and I saw this with dairy, pressure always comes from the top. And when you got three big supermarkets that control nearly 80% of the grocery market, they become the market and they create the market and set the market. Uh, and I think um, they uh, have acted in an unconscionable way. And, and, you know, I went after them when I was minister on dollar litre milk and we broke that. 
uh, but we've got more to do. And I think we we try to do a bit of work uh, under the perishable goods inquiry, it implemented some of those recommendations, but I don't think we went far enough. Uh, and that's why when I became Nats leader, I wanted to make sure the government knew if they wanted to have a crack, then the Nats would walk in and support them. And that's around uh, the grocery code of conduct, that's around divestiture powers and about making sure um, that if they step outside in dealing with uh, super, with consumers or farmers, there's significant penalties. They might lose their Dan Murphy's chains. They might lose their BWS chains mm. um, because when you have that sort of concentration of power, you can use fear and intimidation on farmers and then you can game it when prices go down at the checkout at the farm gate and, and not reflected at the checkout. Something's not right and... The ACCC should have been sent in to look into this, but the government still hasn't done that, despite not just me saying, the Nationals saying. Rod Sims said it even before the Nationals did in October. He said it in May. Uh, I wrote to them in December 22 and said, bring forward your, your scheduled review into your grocery code that's due, was meant to be in October 23, so they've only just started now in 24, and bring in divestiture powers and we're ready to go. You could have had that going 12 months ago, but when you saw this conduct, the evidence is clear. From meat is that, prices is and it just fresh about produce, that something should have happened. Yeah. Is it just about, you think, the lack of competition with those kind of, well, two big ones and one third party in there as well as the main retailers? Is it is it that we need more competition or is it transparency through the supply chain? What, what, what do you think is the biggest factor there? Yeah, both. And it's, it's not one single silver bullet. When you look at, you look at England and their grocery market, um, they're, they're major too. Um, control about 43% of the grocery market. Uh, in the US, the big four over there control about 34% of the market. So our big three control 74, 80% of the market. Something's not right. And, and I get that we're a smaller population. You've got to understand that that takes time to wash through. So you've got to create a competitive environment. But until then, you've got to put, as governments, uh, regulatory guide rails to protect uh, suppliers, farmers, and producers and the transparency and that ACCC Perishable Goods Inquiry that I instituted came back with greater transparency from the farm gate to your plate so that we can see what the cost structure is, for, not just from the farmer but through the supply chain so that we can understand the reasonableness of the margin that the supermarket's putting on. I'm not against them making profits. We need yeah. them to make profits. But when you're dealing in a commodity that underpins all life, uh, you've got to make sure that... Their, their profit is comfortable and the way that they conduct themselves with their supplies, particularly farmers who are dealing in a perishable commodity, is protected and that they don't use that market influence and dominance uh, to, to actually uh, force farmers into positions uh, that they have nowhere to get out of. And that's the thing that I think we've seen. And the evidence has been clear for some time that we need to do something about this we need on a regulatory guide rail and the competition piece, there needs to be more work about incentivising new players uh, to come into this. But everyone can play a role in that. It's where you go and buy your groceries and it's where you go, whether you go to the local butcher or you get it at Coles or Woolworths or Aldi or you go to the local small business uh, butcher or green grocer to get your groceries, uh, your green groceries. We all got a role to play in this as well. So I'm glad you mentioned you mentioned the you know, population being a small population because we've had this discussion before, I think, Andrew, on a podcast around competition and we'd said then that, you know, the population of Australia, if you look at a lot of things like banking, you know, there's four main banks, airlines, there's only a handful of airlines that operate, 
you know, and the grocery part is the same. The retail side, there's only a handful of big operators. Is it is it because we're such a poor, small population that we we don't have the size of like America, and then therefore that bigger, you know, kind of attraction for internationals to come in and, suppose, and play in this space? I, I suppose we've got two issues. We've got the issue of the fact that we've got a small population, but also a huge geography. Yeah. You, you look at the UK, we've got huge population, but relatively small geography. So, and, and that plays some of it, but it's also about, um, I think governments of the past of both persuasions um, in, in how they um, how they made some regulatory decisions uh, decades ago that gave Woolworths and Coles the opportunity um, to expand and give them some, uh, and, and to their credit, they, they invested their own capital, their own sweat in, in opening that up but making that dominance and I think governments of all persuasions of the generations of the past have probably let that happen. That concentration happen when they shouldn't have um, and should have been more agile and bringing in that competition. And now it's even hard, it's, it's harder because of the fact of this geographical mm. issue as well as population issue. Uh, and it makes it makes it more difficult. So that's the challenge that we're going to have and we need to get around. So so has the, has the, has the, so the current go government been responsive enough? Like, have they been quick enough to act? Because you said before about the inquiry that got you'd wanted to see that come through quicker, right? Yeah. So let me just take you back in in timeline. We did the the ag perishable goods inquiry, and we implemented most of those recommendations just before the election. And I wrote to the to the government straight after becoming the leader of the Nats and said look, this is the pathway that the Nationals wanted to move around competition policy in supermarkets. If you wanted um, a bipartisan approach and you wanted to move towards the divestiture powers around a compulsory code of conduct, bring forward your grocery code of conduct review that wasn't due to start till October 23. This was in, in December 22, I wrote to the government and said, bring it forward and we'll support you and bring in the divestiture powers and you'll have, it'll, it'll be legislation that will have bipartisan support. Um, they wrote back and said, no, no, we're happy to wait till October 23 instead of doing it in the start of 23. Uh, and so the opportunity was there. But then they got another big, a big warning when Rod Sims came out in May and said, something's not right. We're seeing, we're seeing as we saw in COVID. And, and the big thing was COVID, the profits they made out of COVID. He believed that there was something not right about the profits they made during COVID, that they were gaming the, and gouging customers. And so we should unleash the ACCC under that. But then when we saw in June, cattle and sheep prices dropped by 60 70%, but only 8% at the checkout. And then you saw what was happening in fresh produce. That We came out in October, November and said, something's not right. Not only did you have to have the regulatory guide rails with the penalties, you should get the ACCC in to actually, who are the ones that understand the pricing mechanisms that supermarkets use and the chains that the supply chains are use. They're the ones who could investigate this. Not a bunch of politicians in a Senate inquiry. It's not even starting until February, effectively, because mm. no one's back in Canberra until February. So, unfortunately, they, they weren't alive to it. And, and when you look at what the driver of inflation is, the fixed cost, your fixed cost is what's keeping inflation up. We've stopped going to see Jerry Harvey to buy TVs and fridges, but your energy bill and your food bill are the main drivers of what's keeping inflation up and what's keeping interest rates up. And those are the drivers that the government doesn't have to spend a cent on. It's regulatory levers that doesn't flood the economy but actually pulls in 
and puts pressure, downward pressure on the drivers of inflation on food in particular. And that's the missed opportunity that Albanese is now just waking up to. Because this is going to be the election thing for the next election is cost of living pressure. And let's be honest, there's going to be more votes as a nation for reducing the cost to consumers than there is on increasing prices to farmers. Yeah, it's, it's no surprise in, in any political party's polling, cost of living is one, two and three. Uh, I think you'll see that the next election will be fought on cost of living be, and that's on food, that's on energy uh, and also on housing. And that that translates into immigration policy. Uh, the one and a half million that they want to bring in, you've got to house them. And when there's enough competitive pressure already, we don't have enough homes for the people that are here at the moment. Housing is going to be the, the other major issue. So... This is this is why Albanese rushed to bring everybody back, um, costing you five hundred thousand dollars. But effectively, um, if he's just going to tinker with the tax rates, the tax rates you can't do anything until we come back to sit in two weeks anyway. So why wouldn't you just wait until we're all there and save the taxpayer half a million dollars? Uh, and he also wants to put in an extra fifty-three politicians, costing you about sixty-three million dollars extra dollar a, a year. Um, we don't need more politicians. We just need to be better at our jobs. Well, and with inflation, as you said, all those costs of living pressure just mentioned, David, that inflation inflation rates aren't going to come off in a hurry if they don't get sorted, and then that means interest rates won't be coming off in a hurry either. Um, In that interest rate space, because you mentioned housing costs, I I presume you're talking about just the actual cost physically to buy housing, not necessarily just the interest costs as well with interest rates going up. Do you think um, the average Australian mortgage holder uh, did they did they get too lulled into that period of a decade where we had really very very low interest rates because we're not really back yet at so the cash rate's not yet back at the long term average levels if you go back say twenty years um, did we are we did we just get too used to very low borrowing costs yeah and I think uh, to an extent we did and but understand that um, our debt levels are a lot a lot higher than what they were as well and that feeds into this pressure that people are feeling. Um, and then when you exacerbate that with the other fixed cost drivers into inflation, your energy bill and your food bill, then that mortgage is just so much more lethal um, than, than what it was uh, and because people are carrying a lot more debt. And this is where you've got to be careful about those drivers that government can influence um, to keep that, that pressure off where mortgages are, uh, like your food, those, those fixed costs like food and electricity. And that's where the government, um, you know, they've only just realised this week that they might need more supply and gas. Um, I'm, mm. I'm just a bloke from, from Western Queensland with a year 12 education, but I learned in grade eight about demand and supply. And if you increase supply, prices come down. I even said to Chris Barr when I first became leader, you need to increase supply of gas so electricity prices come down. Um, and this is the sort of simple stuff that governments can do to take pressure off inflation, uh, keep interest rates manageable, and keep the cost, the real cost of living for Australians down in those fixed costs. The discretionary spend's gone. That went, you know, months ago. And this is where the next election will be common, about common sense. Who can actually just pull the levers without flooding the money with more, the economy with more money that actually drives up inflation rather than pulling the policy levers that actually don't cost the taxpayer anything but puts downward pressure on those drivers of energy and particularly your food. So you mentioned, David, we'll we'll move on to probably biosecurity in a second, but you did miss one. Housing, electricity, food. What did you miss, Matt? 
What's that in terms of another cost, cost, cost of living? We spoke about this yesterday. With uh, Colin Biddles. Yep. Beer. Oh, yes. Yeah, oh, well, excise. Yes. Yeah, excise yeah. tax. So... Like that's that's your vote winner. You'll reduce excise tax, and that will get you in. Yeah, I got to say, um, I think we're getting a point. I mean, I went to the pub in Roma last night, and you know, um, got to say, it, it they don't miss you. For the excise is starting to get out of control, and I think we are going to have to have a, a serious conversation about that, about beer, at, at, not just at the pubs, but for our distillers, um, because regional Australia does have some pretty strong industry growth in these boutique distillers that are coming out. Uh, and, and you're right, I think inflation is, uh, sorry, uh, indexation of, of, of uh, that excise, something needs to happen and we're, we're probably going to have to tackle that one as well. You are right. Colin was in a Colin was in a pub in North Sydney, so there would have been a fair premium attached to uh, <laughs> to the point that he was drinking in North Sydney, you know, overlooking the, the harbour probably. The, the hipster premium. Yeah, yeah, he only drinks at the high end. I'm, I'm used to the outback pubs. So, if right, here's a question for you: You get into power tomorrow, and you've got the magic wand, and you could introduce one policy for cost of living. What would it be? Uh, it has to be energy, uh, a sensible energy policy. Um, and, and that you, we will actually detail, and that'll be all of the above, which will be we're not against renewables, but there needs to be a place for them, particularly solar. Solar should be on roofs, uh, uh, commercial properties and residential properties, not on prime agricultural land, um, and, and we've got abundance of it, but we, we need to firm that up with gas, carbon capture storage, uh, and we can do that also with uh, nuclear energy. Uh, not We're not going to have huge number of plants, but we need to firm it up with, with nuclear. Uh, carbon capture storage will protect gas and coal. We've got all our resources, sovereignty of all our resources here. We don't have to worry about Vlad cutting a tap off. Um, we can actually have a good energy mix and you shouldn't put all your energy eggs in one basket. Don't go all renewables, don't go all, all gas or all coal or all nuclear. We should spread it across uh, because we can and it's the smart thing to do. Uh, I think that'll be the biggest thing that you'll that we'll be waving our wand at uh, around cost of living. Actually, speak, before we go into uh, biosecurity levies, you I saw something in, that you were talking about the other day about the renewable project, uh, the release of a report. Yeah, so um, the government back in July commissioned a report into the impacts these renewable projects were having on regional Australia and on agriculture. Uh, and they were going to release that report before Christmas, but still haven't. Uh, mm. and, and I think this is important because uh, a lot of the renewable projects, big ones that have been done at the moment, they've been the low-hanging fruit. They've been done close to exist, existing transmission lines. Um, the, now we're getting to the greenfield sites that it's not just knocking down um, prime agricultural land, they're knocking down native vegetation to not only put up the, the solar factories and the wind factories, but they've got to plug them in. And there's 28,000 kilometres of transmission lines. So there's a big impact that we're going to have here. And if you can get away from having those costs and you put solar where the concentration of power is required and the concentration of population is, which is on people's roofs and on, on commercial properties in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, you don't need the transmission lines. And if you plug in nuclear, small nuclear power plants into where existing coal-fired power stations are, you don't need new transmission lines. And you don't need to knock down regional Australia. We're being expected to carry the bill. 
And this is where we're saying, let's just pause, let's plan, let's use some common sense. We've got sovereign evil resources. We can actually get a sensible plan. But they don't want to release this report because um, I think they'll realise that the impact that's having on these communities and on our agricultural production and on the environment is significant. Yeah, because in, in, if you look back at Scotland, Scotland's had a fairly strong renewable programme. So there's a lot of, surprisingly, even though it's dark 90% of the time, they've got solar panels on nearly every building now, I would say. Uh, wind turbines on every hill <coughs> and uh, growing a lot of timber for biofuels on prime agricultural land. So I don't think it's, I still don't think it's the best use of, of land, but I mm. guess it comes, at the end of the day, it still comes down to whether it's profitable for that farmer to do that. Yeah. Uh, and look, I mean, we, we've had MIS schemes and, and I've always yeah. been a little bit concerned on the return of that, but um, this is where, we do have the opportunity to get this right. And there are there are uh, academics out there that are saying uh, the renewables should be at a place uh, that doesn't disturb the environment, which is on the rooftops we've got. And I think you'd find if you if we concentrate our efforts to to that um, and, and look to to put our renewable part in those parts of the country in, in capital cities where the concentration of power is required, then we'll take away much of the need for our productive landscape and, and maintain our food security. And that's just common sense. So um, I think this is going to... Renewables are starting to lose their social licence in in, in uh, regional and remote areas, and it's important that we get this right. And I think people want it because they're paying the bill for it now. And ideology doesn't necessarily keep the lights on nor keep this cheap. And we think that there's a better way to do it, um, and, and that's what we'll be prosecuting. Fair enough. Um, by security level, I think we you mentioned. Uh, I think the the phrase you used was ridiculous when we mentioned um, by security level at the outset here. Um, and, it's, and, it's not, to... and it's not been popular with any farming group so far. No. Well, we've already made an announcement in the last budget in May that we'll scrap this because there was no need for it to start with. In fact, um, the last instruction I gave uh, the department before the last federal election in two thousand twenty two was to complete the uh, to complete the uh, consultation with the import industry on the introduction of a container levy and a cost recovery model on bulk goods. Uh, that consultation had been done and everyone was in agreement, even the importers, because it cost them uh, to have a boat bobbing out um, and not being unloaded, it cost them about 120 to 130 grand a day. So they need an efficient biosecurity model at ports to, to get their product out as quick as quick as we can. Uh, so we actually were about to put a, a buy a container levy on every on every container that came in to pay on a cost recovery model. And you can do that, and that's within the WTO rules, so long as you can demonstrate what the costs you are asking the importer to pay. If we can't demonstrate that, then we're outside the WTO rules. So for the government to say, oh, this is all about trade and WTO, that's BS. The reality is that it had already been checked and the department was, that was to be implemented. And in fact, in the last budget, I was the only minister to have an income measure approved by the budget. And that was to bring in place this container levy in the MyEFO December, 2022. So the government, some for some reason, told the department, don't worry about all the work you've done. We're going to simply impose a biosecurity tax on our farmers, a 10% levy on the levies they pay to their RDCs. 
which is effectively asking our farmers to pay for the biosecurity costs of their foreign competitors to bring their product to this country, to put it on a shelf and compete against Australia, but we're paying their costs. We, when we export, that doesn't happen for us. We have to pay for our own biosecurity costs when we send product to Japan or China or the United States. But we're not asking our foreign competitors to do that. And th this is just pure ideology that you are sitting here saying that you're going to charge our farmers for our foreign competitors bringing their products here. I, in what parallel universe does that make sense? Uh, this is insane. And there'll be some that will have to pass it on and, and are able to pass it on. But there'll be some industries where they can't, and the farmer's going to bear the cost of this. Um, the work had been done. I don't know what Planet Murray Watt was sitting on when he came up with this little chestnut, um, but we've made it clear one of the first things we will do is scrap this and we will re reintroduce what we were going to put in place and was going to be put in place in December 2022, which is a container levy and a cost recovery model for all bulk imports, uh, and that you they would pay uh, what the department would uh, have to charge to bring that product into this country. That's fair, and um, that's within WTO rules. Industry have been saying that there was no consultation prior to the announcement either with any sector by the sound of things. So is that a good methodology for, for kind of considering these new, I guess, levies or taxes, um, for want of a better descriptor? Well, you know, I'm going to tell you, the consultation we went through to get the import industry to agree to this was excessive and and long, um, but we got there in the end because they understood that that they were posing biosecurity risks to our country. But I mean, I could have I nearly fell off the chair when I was in the budget lockup room uh, in the budget last year when when Murray White put this in and Anthony Albanese put this in. And and the, the you know the bizarre thing about this is the money they're raising the 153 million dollars is not necessarily going to biosecurity measures. It's going back into consolidated revenue of the department. And the department, as I understand, has gone broke again. Um, and they're running, they can't They can't manage the, the money. In fact, they're robbing programs that the coalition put in place just to keep the lights on. Um, there are people within the department that are now saying things are that bad. But if you're going to charge a levy for, for biosecurity, you would have thought that money might have gone back to some biosecurity programs. So this just doesn't add up. And I, and I can't understand how the minister wouldn't have just gone... Hold on, guys. Um, this just doesn't make sense. Someone's going to get upset about this, rightfully. But um, look, that's the government you've got. That's that's the way that they've treated agriculture since they've been there. They've taken away. Uh, they're going to take away the live sheep export industry. They've taken away the ag visa. They've buggered the palm scheme to make it unviable for anybody, uh, which has taken away supply chain confidence and um, and actual throughput. Uh, the Murray Darling's about buggered. Um, you know, the, the, the biosecurity tax, the trucky tax, I mean, they've increased the road user charge on our transport industry by 16.5%. Um, that's got to be passed on. So I think, this is I, David, I think you're being a little bit harsh on Murray Watt there because <laughs> you, you, you're picking out all the negatives and that's, that's your place as the opposition. What you have forgotten to say is that Murray Watt has been very, very successful in getting all of the agricultural bodies in agreement on many topics. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you have to always sort of see that like it, it's there's bigger picture stuff as well happening. Yeah, true, and, very true. And, and now oh, the, oh. The, the industry is all in alignment on a number of topics from live exports to uh, biosecurity levies. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, it, it's just it is one of the most bizarre decisions I've seen of any of any minister, particularly when the work had been done, um, departmental work had been done, the consultation had been done with the importers, who are the ones that should be screaming, not our farmers. Um, and, and this is just, it was just bizarre. And, and I don't know who gave him the advice, but I would have thought if you had a little bit of common sense, um, you might have just questioned whoever was giving you the advice and said, why are we shifting from the model of coalition out? Because everyone everyone was content with what we were trying to do. But anyway, that was that's something for Murray Watt to explain when you get him on. What um, well, we, we have we have sent an invitation. Uh, we haven't we, we we had, had a reply yet. You, your your media people replied within. On a Saturday, they replied within. Yeah. Oh, that's good within, to hear. Within six hours. Yeah. So you was, must be working time. Must be cracking the whip there on the uh, on the team there in your office, uh, Minister. But but what um what you're saying about Murray? What Andrew made a point there that he has um he has helped to kind of organise parts of the agricultural sector. But he's been pretty busy too with um a lot of the emergency response recently. Right? I've had quite a bit of emergency response. And Colin Bettles mentioned this on the podcast we had yesterday, that he felt perhaps having you know, emergency management and agriculture under the one portfolio looked, you know, cared for by the one minister. Is that too much of an ask? Because you've, you've been in a similar position in charge of, you know, emergency response and agriculture as well, you know, you know, even including environment and water, I guess, as part of your portfolio mix when you're when you're in um, in the leadership previously. Is it is it too much of a job? That to have that agriculture and emergency response together? No. Uh, and in fact, I was agriculture and emergency services minister during the Black Summer, um, one of the worst natural disasters our country's ever faced. Um, and I've got to say, there's, that's that's no excuse. Uh, and um, in fact, there's some symbiotic relationship between the two and, and in fact because you find that these natural disasters take place in many of the regional mm -hmm. and remote areas uh, and much of it is the agricultural industry so it actually is an advantage for the agriculture minister to be the emergency services minister as well uh, and you have a far more intrinsic understanding of the pressures and the pains that those communities are going to take uh, so, look, that, that's no excuse whatsoever. I'm sorry. Um, I've been there, done that, bought the T-shirt, and it was a worse T-shirt than his. And I remember going to Cabago with Scott Morrison. Um, I was there that fateful day. Uh, so <laughs> I didn't go into that. Uh, but anyway, he. but no, Minister, you, are, you have the resources of departments at your behest. Uh, and I've got to say, you always know that the natural disasters come from about September through to about um, just after Easter. Uh, and so there is no excuse. Uh, these are policy failures uh, that Murray White and Anthony Albanese have made. Uh, I don't think they've made too many mistakes in emergency management, but but that's because there's been long-standing disaster arrangements between the federal government and the states. Most of the operational management happens at the state level, not the federal level. Our job is to cut the check when the problem's there, and that's why being the agricultural minister, you get out and go and have a look. You can help cut the check for your farmers because you can see what's on the ground. Mm. So. Um, I think uh, that's a cop-out and Murray White simply hasn't taken the interest nor had the capacity of the Cabinet table to influence what he needs to to get agriculture's fair share, but instead made us the whipping boys, uh, whether it be for water, whether it be for infrastructure, whether it be for, for the road user charge. Um, we've copped it in the neck um, and that's not good for regional Australia, but it's not good for Australia. Mm. 
did um last time I'm trying to remember now last time we had you on it was only early in the piece and we asked you to give a scorecard. I, I, to... I, I was thinking what was it? <laughs> I can't I, remember what you gave it, I, last time. I think it was actually higher than I expected. I think it was a seven out of ten. I feel you gave Murray Water seven out of ten for his performance. Yeah, you know, six, six or seven months later, where, where do you think uh, it sits? Well, well, look, I think um, I think the evidence that we've just articulated the number of issues, but the point you make is that it's united agricultural industries uh, on one course. And you know what? That's never happened before. Well, it has, sorry. It happened 40 years ago where we saw 20,000 farmers walk on, on Parliament House in Canberra under the Hawke era. Uh, it is the first time that there has been a concerted campaign from the NFF and peak bodies of, of agricultural commodities have united in this one voice against the government and started that off at the NFF conference. So um, I don't I, I don't need to give the score. Agriculture is given the score. It's a pure fail. Uh, and I think they went into this with the right intent of giving Murray what a go, uh, but he hasn't delivered um, I, I can't sit here in all consciousness and say what has he delivered. He's even put the he put the flag up on biosecurity, not only on the levy, on varroa mite, um, and I think uh, the red fire ants gone. He was slow on FMD and he was slow on LSD, lumpy skin disease. Um, I, I can't I can't sit here and say that he's actually even looked as though he's shown an interest in agriculture. I think he has taken a shine to emergency management. Uh, rather than agriculture, but you can't do that as a minister. You got to, you got to, your portfolios are ones you've got to be able to be all over, and you've got to be able to show progress. I think the NFF's giving him the giving him the score, not me, uh, and I think most of it, most farmers in this country would as well give him the same score. Is um is it is it reflective of the fact that agriculture is a bit under attack? Because if you look across to say Europe, there's the, you know currently there's significant farming based protests. Um, you know, heading to the parliament there in, in a couple of different countries. Is it is it just reflective of where we're sitting at the moment, that agriculture is the, you know, a little bit of the whipping boy irrespective of what country you're in presently? Well, no, it's reflective of the governments. It's a reflective of the individual governments in each of those countries and the policies that they're imposing on the people who produce our food and fibre. Uh, that's what it's reflective of. Uh, it's of the ideology uh, uh, that's being thrown on us and... You know, much of that is European ideology. Uh, and, and, you know, I take great humbridge to the Europeans uh, trying to impose themselves either on animal welfare standards or on sustainability around deforestation. I mean, this mob absolutely flattened their whole continent hundreds of years ago. And then they have the audacity to sit here and say, Australia, um, we won't take any product unless that we can prove there's been no deforestation. Uh, we have, we have uh, some of the best environmental... Um, stewardship of of agricultural land in this country that I don't think any country uh, would be able to match. Uh, and we've had to do that. And I used to be a, a bank manager that lent money to farmers because they know that their profit and loss is intrinsically tied to the, the health of the environment that they're managing. And so we've learned how to manage our environment better than Europeans. And and so this is where governments in European, in European countries have got away from themselves. But I think, unfortunately, we've had governments here, a government here in Australia that's following that lead, and farmers feel as though they're under siege, and they are under siege. Governments should just put the guide rails around and try to get the hell out of their life. Uh, but unfortunately, we've got a government that's in our farmers' lives too much, uh, and it's hurting them, uh, and it's also hurting consumers because that's going to flow through uh, to the simple principle that farmers are getting out and the supply goes down and prices go up. 
so let's go into the gossip, David. <laughs> All right. Uh, will David Littleproud, David Littleproud, you're David Littleproud, will Murray Watt still be the Ag Minister by the end of this time of government? Oh, I have no doubt about it. Uh, no one else No one else wants it in the Labor. Uh, it was his ticket to the Cabinet table. Um, he's not going to give it up. Uh, I don't think you'll see Murray Watt uh, move from, from agriculture. Any other gossip you're hearing? Uh, none that are fit for a podcast. This is a this. Is, we're we're not recording now. Yeah, it's, it's just it's just it's just me, you, Matt, and my auntie Julie. I'm pushing the button. The meeting has been recorded. Still, oh, under still there. There's a safety check for me. Yeah. So so we've gone through. So if, if you look at the big topics, biosecurity is is one that has united the uh, united the people in agriculture. We've got the cost of living crisis. Like I obviously I work in agriculture, and but most of my friends are non-agricultural people, and they're constantly talking about the cost of food, constantly asking me why is it so expensive? Why is it so expensive? I had friends who wanted to go to Wagga sale yard with the ute and get five lambs and mm-hmm. slaughter them in the back garden until I explained what you've got to do, and they were a bit squeamish at that. Uh, but. It is, it is going to be that sort of huge, huge issue. But I still have one concern about that is how you do it at, without being at the expense of farmers. Because yeah. like you said rightly, there's a middle ground there that is making a lot of money. But it's probably not making enough money to make the huge difference that we're talking about. Like What, what is the profitability of Coles and Woolworths? Like no, 1.3 billion? Which is probably not enough... To, if, if they have that and that went back to the consumer, that's probably still not going to make a huge difference. So there's something yeah. else missing. Yep. Uh, and, and look, this is where the perishable goods, it's a really good question. And this is one of the things that the ACCC unearthed for us is that there's got to be transparency uh, of the cost of production through the supply chain. Uh, and, and this is where there's not because of this market concentration dominance that's putting pressure down on um, on the suppliers and processes all the way through, and we saw that in the dairy industry. I mean, I, I think I think the processes were were they deserve some of the blame, but I think they got too much of the blame around around what happened with the dollar litre milk. I think the pressure came from the top; it came from supermarkets uh, because of their dominance, their their buying dominance. So this is where we need to have a really good understanding of that of that transparency of cost of production from farm gate then transport, if it gets processed, all the way through to what gets it on the shelf. Uh, and, and that's some of the work that we started and the government, the new government had to finish off. I think that's the only way that we can get an understanding and then making sure there are those regulatory barriers and guide rails to, to protect the supplier and the consumer. And then it's the long, hard road about competition, about how do we increase that competition in the marketplace uh, and that's the only way that we can can provide that, and that's going to take time. But when the time, when you have the tools in front of you, you should use them straight away. And that's where I think the government has had the tools to, to try and go some of the ways of putting some of the suite of the measures in. They haven't, and now they're trying to. I thank them for that. But um, there's been a lot of pain um, in the meantime that Australians and farmers have felt. You mentioned with ACCC, and as you were saying that, I thought of the ACCC red meat inquiry from 2015 that had a swag of recommendations 
you know, and a lot of that was to do with lack of transparency in that red meat space, particularly in the beef, you know, supply chain. Um, but we haven't, despite some of those recommendations, we haven't really seen that transparency. It's still an ongoing kind of issue for the red meat supply chain. Um, Andrew and I, episode three, separate to AgWatchers, we we did some work in, and we continue to do work in transparency in the fertiliser pricing space as well. It's another area that's a bit opaque. In fact, one of the Greens... Um, Op opaque. One of I would say it was uh, like a brick wall. Um, yeah. But anyway. But, but, but some of our work in that was used by the Greens in a Senate's estimates. I think um, Senator Wish Wilson um, referred to our work there. Um, as very good work, I think. It was. Um, I mean, other Green senators have re referred to us as being dodgy under parliamentary privilege of Senate's estimate. But, but, um, but clearly not, not, when... Not that, not that we're... Uh, uh, still beaten up about that, and still no, no. But, I mean, it was it Bad was curious. Tomorrow. It I was felt... curious, curious that one one bit of work that suited them in transparency for fertilizer price was good work, but other work in live export is cheap that didn't suit their narrative was considered dodgy. But anyway, you can, I guess you can pick and choose. Um, but do you think going back to the point with the ACCC and getting them to look at this grocery uh, price inquiry, uh, do they have enough teeth to be able to you know um, make a difference? No, and that's why we believe in divestiture powers. They've got to have a big stick um, to, to make these big supermarkets, these big conglomerates um, scared. If, if you don't have something that's tangible, um, you, you don't scare them. And a bit of public naming and shaming goes a little way, but then they go, oh, well, um, they'll, they'll advertise their way out of it. There has to, has to be something that's tactile, that's tangible, that makes them hurt, makes them bleed. Otherwise, when you have that concentration of power, you, you put your head down for six months and you let it blow over. Um, and that's where I think that was my that was my my offer to the government is to say in December 2022, um, let's let's finish this off. Let's actually go to vestiture powers. Let's bring forward that review that you need that had to be done as a statutory review. Bring it forward, and then we can all move on. And then if when we got all these warning signs in May and June and November, then you all you had to do was call in the ACCC and say, go and investigate this evidence. And if it stacks up, well, there's your trigger for the big stick legislation. There's your trigger to go and divest them of, of Dan Murphy's or BWS stores or whatever they've got. That's the sort of that's the sort of regulatory guide rails uh, that you could could have put in place. And and that's what we're saying. I think the ACCC needs not only the powers, but they sometimes need the resources on this. Uh, yeah. and, and that's what I think the missed opportunity has been for this government. Uh, and, and, you know, when we're seeing fluctuations at the farm gate prices, that should translate to the checkout, and it hasn't. And that is evidence that should have been taken up and acted on, and that's where you need a tough cop, and the tough cop needs to be the ACCC. I agree. I think it's... Yeah, I think there's two solutions. ACCC and the other alternative is the Ag Watchers set up our own grocery chain, <laughs> and um, we'll buy direct from the direct from all of our listeners, and we'll pass on a dividend to them if we make profit. There you go. I love the model. Yeah. Starting Maranoa. Yeah. So, David, we don't want to take up too much more of your time. Uh, any final message to listeners before we go? Oh, look, don't give up hope. We, we still, we've still got a fantastic industry um, and we shouldn't lose sight of what we can do and what we've done. Uh, we paid the bills for this nation. It was regional Australia at the foot of the bill during COVID. 
and I think what we should take heart out of, and I think our agri-political leaders, is this cost of living crisis, we should remind Australians about what our farmers do and how they do it. And the reward that they're asking for isn't, isn't what Coles and Woolworths are asking for. It's just a fair go. Uh, and I think this is an opportunity. I, I know it's tough out there at the moment, but this is an opportunity just to, to actually use, a, use this crisis uh, the right way we should and really advance and remind Australians exactly the role that we play for them in, in keeping them fed and watered. It's going to be a challenging couple of years, especially for us low earners, Matt. Yeah. That's it. That's true. As you were just mentioning then about, um, you know, uh, I guess the good side of things, but I, I was thinking as well that we had a, a change of leadership at the NFF since we spoke to you last, and, and there's, been a, there's, there's been a bit of a different approach with uh, DJ and John Hassel as his deputy there or vice president, whatever you call him, um, as second in command. Um, they've been a bit more... Um, I guess, um, forthright. Oh, yeah, I was going to say forthright. I was trying to think of the right descriptor, but competitive is probably a good one. It's a different style and a different approach than what Fiona Simpson um, undertook when, when she was at the helm of the NFF. What, what do you make of the, the new strategy, David? Well, well, I think it's the right one. I mean, um, Labor's model is, uh, and I'll tell them, oh, look, if you, if you just go quiet, it won't get any worse. Uh, they pat them on the back because their model is to, to to make big change, to screw us over and hope that you and want you and want to make you not to say too much so there's not too much publicity. And then they keep twisting the knife and keep twisting on these policies, these environmental policies uh, or these ideological policies around live sheep and all these sort of things, that unless you stand up and unless you tell your story, then no one knows no one in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane would know anything about the trials and tribulations that we go through unless you take it to them and they understand what it means back to them. And I'm a redneck nat from Western Queensland. I don't have the currency that the NFF president has. And i got to say that it, I thought it was ingenious that DJ at the conference came out and, and laid out those premises. And for the first time in 40 years, took a campaign against the government and made it very clear to them why. And in a way that wasn't over the top, but in a way that said, look, here's our problem. Here's how you fix it. Do it. Otherwise, we're going to continue to be loud and noisy. And I think it's important not just for DJ. I think it's important for his whole board to give him to give him the backing to continue to go and do that because I think, he, you know, I think he's hit the ground running in a, in a very good way in being able to explain our story to people in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane. And that's, that's how you change policy. Uh, not by me jumping up and down until I become the minister. I can't change policy. I need someone with the currency of, of the NFF president to be able to say, explain the why, because they he's he's the trusted voice. So I think they've done a great job, and I just I just hope that they continue to give DJ the backing of the pathway that he's gone. And he's got to give credit where credit's due when they do change policies, and that that's how they should operate. But when they need to throw a brick, they've got to start throwing and throwing big ones. Uh, and I think so long as they keep ramping it up, that's what that's what it is to be to lead a, a membership body is to make sure that you have a value proposition for them. And I can tell you, your members out here in Roma or in Kanamala, where I was last week, they're pretty upset, and they want their peak body to start throwing some some pretty big bricks, mm. uh, and they want some results. So good on them. Uh, I think this year will be will be a um, a big thing uh, about how how far they continue to take that because I think that'll determine. Um, the trajectory of what we can change. It was an interesting descriptor, David, to call yourself a redneck there when I 
I gave the opportunity to the asset when I mentioned banjo music, you flicked it across to Victoria. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you can call yourself a redneck and not like the banjo music. Um, you know, just, just saying, that's all. We do culture with a K in Queensland, mate. There's no such thing as banjo. <laughs> Banjo's up here. <laughs> Dear me. All right. Well, I, 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 was, I was going to make that joke about Australia. What's, what's, <laughs> the, what's the, uh, what have uh, Australia and a yogurt got in common? And who, sorry? What, sorry, what has a yogurt, what's the difference yogurt. between a yogurt and yeah. Australia? What's the difference between the two? No idea. At least it's if you leave a yogurt out for 200 years, it'll grow some culture. It's <laughs> a good one. Yeah. There goes all of our listeners. Yeah. Apart from Auntie Julia, who's Scottish. So, mm. right on, David, it's been yep. good to have you. We've probably kept you longer than mm. we're supposed to. I think last time we got in trouble for keeping you too long, but that wasn't, no, our, right. that wasn't our fault. That was actually your fault on yeah. that occasion. <laughs> um, so, thanks for coming along. Uh, always always a pleasure. Um, we'll, uh, we'll get Murray Watts' review of you uh, whenever he finally, whenever, whenever he yeah, finally he, comes back to us. Well, he might, he might be too busy for us at the moment, Andrew, but we'll wait and see. We'll keep trying. We'll keep trying. That's all we can do. People say yeah, that. People, people, people do say, Matt and Andrew, we're, we're very trying. We're, we're, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Thanks again, David. Um, we'll see you when you've got nothing on. Ciao for now. Thank you. <laughs>